Hi, everyone, and welcome to Radio Cloud Native from Marantis. Every week, we break down tech news in the cloud native world and beyond. I'm Eric Gregory, and this week, we've got guest host John Janeshig filling in for Nick. How's it going, John? It's going great. Uh, I'm John Janeshig. Uh, I'm director of open source initiatives at Marantis, but what I really do is fill in for Nick a lot. Um, my background should not make anyone believe that I'm into stand-up comedy in any way. Lie down <laughs> comedy sometimes. <laughs> Uh, this was your first time hearing our wonderful uh, dance intro there. It, very danceable. How'd you like it? Very danceable. I, you know, I'm going to put it on the EDM channel, uh, you know, on, in my car and everything. <laughs> All right. So this week we'll be talking about two very different organizations' moves toward cloud-native models, a new vulnerability in the Nginx Ingress controller, the impact of machine learning on both 5G security and astronomy, and much more. So we'll start in the Department of Kubernetes Security. Last week saw a report from uh, security firm Lightspin on a newly discovered vulnerability in the Nginx, Nginx Ingress controller. The vulnerability enables attackers to change the Nginx configuration file and ultimately escalate their privileges across the cluster. If you've been following Kubernetes security closely, there may be kind of a sense of deja vu here. Uh, security researchers have been poking holes in the Nginx ingress controller for almost a year now, and this isn't the first vulnerability they found, nor even the first reported by Lightspin. As Lightspin writer Gaffney Amiga writes in her blog on the finding, researchers are sort of picking on the Nginx ingress controller because it makes a particularly attractive target. It's used in over 50% of clusters. It has high-level cluster permissions that are ripe to be exploited, and its open-source code is available to study. So moving forward, Lightspin recommends that the Nginx web proxy component be redesigned so that it doesn't have access to ingress controller resources, which it really doesn't need to work. In the meantime, they note that overall, the ingress controller has seen a number of swift and important security upgrades to address CVEs as they've emerged, including this one. Uh, as of version 1.2.1 of the Nginx ingress controller, this most recent uh, CVE is addressed. So if you're wondering what you need to do, the big takeaway is that you want to make sure you know whether your cluster is using the Nginx ingress controller. And if so, you want to make sure it's up to date. So zooming out a little bit from security to the cloud-native landscape at large, uh, the last week has seen some interesting stories about organizations going through cloud-native transformations. Can you tell us a little bit about FedEx, John? Certainly. Um, the story is that FedEx has announced that sometime in the next two years, over the next two years, it's going to retire all of its remaining mainframe and data centers and move completely to public cloud. Mm -hmm. um, their CIO, Rob Carter, said on the company's latest investor call that we've been working across this decade to simplify and streamline our technology and systems to create value all along the way by improving productivity, security, and reliability. Uh, according to Carter, the, the company has been gradually breaking down its monolithic applications, and it's finally ready to take that last leap. Currently, they use Microsoft Azure and Oracle Cloud. There's no word on whether they'll keep this hybrid design, add other vendors to the architecture, or try to centralize on a single public cloud vendor. What we do know is that FedEx has some serious expectations. They think this change will save them $400 million every year. Wow, that's that's a lot. And fits into a pattern we're seeing kind of across the industry, right? And bounces off other stories that we'll talk about, I think, later in this program. Um, it's uh, really quite extraordinary, though, that such a big company that is so intensely dependent on um, 
on real-time functionality, uh, yeah. you know, of a of a very high capacity, hugely distributed infrastructure, all the way out into trucks, IoT devices, scanners, and you know, it's just extraordinary how much IT they have. You know, they're running automated conveyor belts in Atlanta, yeah. and uh, you know, all the rest of that stuff. That uh, that they're making this move. I mean, it's you know, it's uh, viewed simplistically, it's an extraordinary endorsement uh, of uh, public cloud as a functional operating model for almost anyone. Absolutely. It's not a uh, light transformation lift. <laughs> no, I, by no means. I, I, you know, I, I look forward to interviewing some of their engineers and architects and, and seeing how they're going to they're, they're gonna make this jump. Yeah. So for another organization rethinking their approach in light of cloud advancements, we've got the UK Government Digital Service, or GDS, announcing on their blog that they will be sunsetting their gov.uk platform as a service. The UK government created this bespoke in-house platform as a service in 2015 to give its agencies a quick and easy way to host digital services. Among other things, the past served through the onset of COVID-19, enabling the UK government to quickly stand up digital services responding to the pandemic. So according to the GDS, the past is being put to pasture. Past to pasture, there's, there's a joke there, I think. Uh, not so much for any shortcomings on the part of the software, but on account of the cloud environment around it. In their words, quote, the big cloud providers, AWS, Azure, GCP, and others have upped their game and reduced the barriers to entry for digital teams. Over the same period, departments have built better and more expert in-house cloud engineering capability and are broadly clustering around a Kubernetes-based architecture, end quote there. So that's super interesting. Uh, in the thinking of GDS, accessible public cloud and the flexibility of Kubernetes mean that it no longer makes sense to focus time and money on the bespoke infrastructure platform. As they say in their blog post, they're not a private entity and their goal isn't making a profit, but they do need to make sure that they're optimizing their resources. So, you know, really this story is pretty similar to FedEx. They're getting away from managing infrastructure so they can allocate resources to other projects like government-sponsored payment notification services that they manage. There's, uh, there's probably a lot that can be parsed out of this as well. Just the fact that... Um, that what PASS did, what we were all looking at PASS for seven, eight, nine years ago, um, five years ago, uh, has been taken down into the container level and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, into libraries and, and has been packaged um, on the developer desktop. Um, so having a standardized infrastructure as opposed to a, you know, a bespoke or single vendor kind of PASS solution is is uh, actually more more efficient with no loss of productivity to yeah. individual developers anymore that's kind of a sea change right i mean you know i i remember thinking that pass was a brilliant idea when i first heard about it and yeah. uh, you know i built all them past platforms um on our OpenStack and other things but uh but you know so it goes technology evolves the time zero continues ever forward yes yeah. um well, speaking of public cloud, uh, we've had some some uh, news about kind of shifting dynamics there. Big news. Um, the big news this week is uh, that the 800-pound gorilla, uh, AWS, has finally fallen, or at least it's being held at bay by uh, what looks to be about an 850-pound gorilla. <laughs> um, we got the news that Amazon Web Services is no longer the largest public cloud provider uh, being beat out by Microsoft Azure. Um, we reported a, a few weeks ago 
that Azure had beat out AWS for enterprise business. And now SDX Central has reported that Azure has beat out cloud rival Amazon Web Services in capturing the largest share of global public cloud services revenue last year, according to IDC. The research firm reported that Microsoft accumulated 14.4% of the market's $408.6 billion in revenues last year, just a whisker ahead of the 13.7% that AWS snared. Microsoft uh, has offerings in all four sections of the public cloud services market lumped by IDC into its report, including infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, system infrastructure, software as a service, and application software as a service. Um, partly, what's interesting here is that while AWS started out providing infrastructure as a service, they're basically virtual machines for rent. Um, the environment has changed a lot in intervening years. The largest category last year was actually software as a service applications, which brought in $177.8 billion, up 23.5% from the year before, followed by IAAS at $91.3 billion. In addition, the fastest growing category was platform as a service, so okay, <laughs> at $68.2 billion, up 39.1%. Uh, IDC VP Rick Villar said organizations continued their strong adoption of shared public cloud services in 2021 to align IT investments more closely with business outcomes and ensure rapid access to the innovations required to be a digital first business. And all of this is, I guess, particularly significant because uh, IDC also predicts this will be the year that cloud spending outpaces non-cloud spending with $90.2 billion spent on cloud infrastructure compared with $60.7 billion on non-cloud. Yeah, that really, uh, it's obviously a tipping point, right? I was going to say, it seems like it's a tipping point, but... It may, uh, makes that... me wonder how they're defining platform as a service here in this particular, in this particular way. I mean, if some yeah. people are giving up, other people are, you know, maybe it's just a domain of ferment at the moment. Platform as a service still looks good at people, maybe because they don't understand that that technology has moved on and that there are other ways of getting high utility and low cognitive load to programmers at the same time as you get high standardization of platform and, you know, uniform substrate. Yeah. And maybe even just a question of exactly how it's being hosted, exactly how it's being deployed. Very uh, interesting. Um, yeah. All right, so uh, moving on, if I may. Absolutely. Um, we have a story here about 5G and Edge. Um, 5G security uh, has come to depend on machine learning in many cases. Uh, and to get around that, researchers at the University of Liechtenstein discovered that by appending garbage data to request packets in a technique called adversarial machine learning, they could basically warp the network model and ultimately jam the network so that it couldn't be used. So this is a a new take, I guess, on a universal denial of service. The reason that this works is that the ML algorithms are designed to learn from the traffic that they see. So when you send them garbage, they learn that garbage in is what's called a myopic attack. Um, they learn that garbage, I should say, in what's called a myopic attack. Um, how interesting yeah, to I, think I thought... that you can deform the behavior of models in this way. Yeah, uh, that that seems like that's going to become more and more relevant. Yes. Well, um, clearly this is, you know, an attack surface and probably the people who build a lot of ML know about it, but mm -hmm. it may be technically infeasible to reject this stuff and filter it out. Though previously I'd only heard appending garbage data in the context of like when I make an attachment on an email. Um, 
yeah, this is this is a new one. Well, I mean, yeah, I, you know, just appending garbage data or you know appending <laughs> SQL, you know, <laughs> SQL commands, the little Bobby tables, right, is uh, is old news, uh, although perpetually funny, right? Um, <laughs> anyway, to continue with this story, Deutsche Telekom and Ericsson are dealing with a problem that you might not think about. Autonomous vehicles should be able to maneuver without hitting anything, of course. And one of the ways they can do that is by using data from other vehicles. For example, if one car senses a hazard in the road and brakes, that information can be relayed to cars behind it so they can take better, that is safer, evasive action. But there's something that some people don't think of, hopefully the engineers do, which is that phone systems, including 5G, are typically handled on a national basis. So, so if an autonomous vehicle crosses from Germany to France and then breaks hard to avoid, say, a cow <laughs> or whatever wanders into the road in France, um, you know, cows being definitely one thing, <laughs> the cars that haven't yet crossed the border aren't going to know about it. Fascinating. Yeah, uh, that seems like uh, a a right problem for uh, a lot of systems to try to address is making sure that that data from multiple different domains uh, that you know would be optimal if if they sort of uh, uh, transcended those domains. Was well, it, it means that you have to rethink borders. Deutsche yeah. Telekom and Ericsson are working on five G communication at the border as part of the Europe, European Union five G. Croco, fifth generation cross-border control initiative, starting with the border between Germany and France, because apparently a lot of cows, a lot of problems there. <laughs> cows really pile up there. And also between Germany and Luxembourg. So uh, we will see some, um, we will see some, I suppose, regulational and cooperative development here. But I wonder if this is not a problem that we need maybe some changes in technology yeah, to solve. Maybe the idea of a border needs to soften where communications are happening. It's, uh, you know, a problem that exists within sort of a regulatory space, but also a technological space. And, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, those two are going to have to be kind of synchronized uh, to address that. Very interesting. All right. So uh, turning our attention to a different sort of edge, uh, NASA released the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope yesterday, showing much clearer and more data-rich captures of cosmic phenomena like the Southern Ring Nebula and Stefan's Quintet. There's a fun little site doing the rounds, uh, the rounds on Hacker News that lets you compare images from Webb with images from Hubble. Uh, Nick, if you could show that, we can show some pretty space pictures. Pretty space pictures. Look at that. So uh, kudos to the site's developer, John Christensen, for getting that up in a day, it seems like. Uh, it does a great job of giving us an intuitive feel for the leap in Webb's imaging, even though a lot of the important improvements aren't readily obvious to the naked eye or to the casual observer. Uh, the Webb telescope's infrared sensors and very large mirror help it to peer through cosmic dust and to capture redshifted light to give us our clearest pictures so far of the early universe. So ultimately what the Webb telescope is capturing is data, a lot of data, and the register reported last month on astronomers and astrophysicists who are using machine learning to sift through all that information. According to the register, quote, a team of nearly 50 researchers will survey half a million galaxies from a patch of the sky. They'll be hunting for the oldest fully evolved galaxies to study how dark matter evolved over time as these structures began hosting stars and use the machine learning model that they call Morpheus to automate this process. So 
pretty cool a space and machine learning story i know nick will be sad that he missed the the combination there um do we have any other kind of fun stories closer to home john i have a, a few more items about the the jwst uh um, oh yeah imagery, if i may uh i have been following astrophysicists on twitter and elsewhere um and uh i i noticed two things this morning that a lot of the data that's coming out we've talked about huge volumes of data coming out of this imaging effort um, is being processed by a Python calibration pipeline, which is a publicly available code repository. So I have not dug into it yet, but it's easy to find uh, if you Google it, JWST calibration pipeline. Um, and, uh, you know, people who are interested in the, in the, the wildest, finest reaches of, uh, of uh, large volume um image data refinement, uh, you know, will be interested. Another news item that I wanted to bring to people's attention is that the, the code, obviously, that, that is being used to process the data from JWST inherits a lot of intelligence from work done over many years with Hubble. And people who are committed to making Hubble imagery better and more consumable for various kinds of astrophysics projects and experiments um, are are about to see some of their work adapted forward, uh, particularly the software parts and the model parts, uh, to improving the quality or changing the quality of um, of uh, JWST uh, images. Mm -hmm. The gravitational lensing, of course, which is what everyone you know, on Twitter and astrophysics Twitter is, is all like, oh my God, we can see gravitational lensing for the first time. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Um, is, is actually something that you might want to take out. You might want to correct for to get a better picture for how things overlap in, in the far and near field and where things are. Um, and uh, a, a set of astrophysicists at the University of Michigan has been working on that initially with Hubble for years. Um, a project headed by uh, Dr. Karen Sharon, astrophysicist uh, and longtime Hubble imagery researcher, computed lensing models for the Hubble frontier fields, which are directly adaptable to the to the to the to the stuff that we're seeing now in these first set of JWC uh, images. Her student Tracy Johnson did a lot of the work. The model is downloadable from a site called Relics, which is also easily found uh, if you Google. So. Um, Moving on, <clears throat> um, if you're one of those people who decided that remote work is for you, and of course we all have, <laughs> you might want to go ahead and think about a new program Indonesia is putting together to enable foreigners to live and work in Bali tax-free for five years, as long as the company you're working for is outside the country. The government figures that even if you pay taxes in the country in which you get paid, those relatively oversized paychecks will be a huge local stimulus. All right, so not quite as uh, far as a trip as you know one of the, one of the galaxies in Stefan's Quintet, but uh, you know uh, maybe maybe nice vacation. Stefan's uh, Quintet is a great title for a sci-fi novel. Oh yeah, yeah. How has that not been used? The, well, I think. Uh, oh, please go ahead. Oh, after you. Um, I was uh, I was just going to say that um, that Neil deGrasse Tyson was talking about Stefan's Quintet also on Twitter last night, but I can't remember the details of what he was saying. It just struck me that the name was, you know, the, the, the name was worth at least a, you know, a, a five volume epic 
science fiction, <laughs> you know, quintet uh, from some, uh, you know, gifted author. Absolutely. Well, I think that is all that we've got for this week. Uh, do you have anything else? Uh, I have nothing. Um, my my background suggests that, you know, what I should probably do is an Emo Phillips routine at this point, but I think I'll probably, <laughs> you know, leave you alone except to say die heretic. And, uh, you know, that's it. All right. Thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for filling in today, John. Uh, thank you to Nika for producing and uh, to all the listeners for tuning in. If you're tuning into the podcast, then you already know that it's available on Apple and Spotify and all the great places where you can get podcasts. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>